Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. Walking through the book of Ephesians, and we're, we're coming now to the, to the close of that, to the end where Paul is going to make some, some final I guess I would call it please to the church. Uh, he's been talking to them about being different and doing different. And he's going to close off by focusing on things that would be his kind of his last statement or his last plea to the church before he closes this letter. If you remember where we've been you know, in walking through this series, I'll just share a few things with you. We opened it with uh, a look at Matthew chapter uh, 18. There's... I need my glasses for this. 16. Okay, there we go. Where we were introduced to this simple thing where Jesus made the statement, I'm going to build my church. And that word church, ecclesia, we've talked about that. It means called out ones, ones that are being called out. And we've talked about that idea at the very beginning, that called out to what? Called out to be different and also to live or to do different. We followed that right up with, I remember Aaron and Alina were here, and they came to us as missionaries from Thailand, began to share with us uh, that whole process about how they had been called out and the ministry that's taking place there in Thailand. And then we talked about in Ephesians 1, we looked at the idea of identity first, that there was this simple question that was posed about do you recognize and understand your true identity in Christ And the question then that was posed was, am I in or out? Am I in Christ or out of Christ? In Christ meaning that there had been a connection made, a a realization of being born again, coming into the kingdom of God, and that would establish identity of being in Christ. Moved on from that to choosing to become different. We talked a little bit about how there's a choice that needs to be made by each and every one of us as to whether we will become what God is calling us to be, whether we are going to take that next step to follow and become what he has created inside of us but needs to be worked out of us. And then we went from there and talked a little bit about bridging the gap and about between this idea of being different and doing different, there's a bridge that needs to be built And Ben talked about so clearly that idea of you bridge that gap with big prayers. Big prayers that you might become and that the church might become all that God is calling it to be. After that, we were in Ephesians chapter 4 and Tom talked to us a little bit about this idea of being different and living different in all that you do. Walking worthy of the Lord. He used that beautiful picture of the rock wall and the fact that each and every one of us is like a stone that would be built into that wall, made specifically for a purpose and plan that God has for us and that together we become, so to speak, rock solid as we are together and built together in Christ. And then we followed that up with this idea of Clinton and Patiana coming and they talked to us about this idea that being called out has a missional nature to it that has a nature that says that we understand that there's a mission that God is calling us not only as individuals, but corporately too, and that we need to respond to that. 
And then last week, if you remember, Ben used that beautiful picture of, of how, do you, how do I put it, relational, uh, that shift of relational posture, that idea that the, we are to meant to take a posture towards everyone of stooping down to lift them up. And he used the example, as Paul did, of talking about the husband-wife relationship, that that is meant to happen in that relationship. It's meant to happen between uh, father, mother, children, that that's supposed to take place. It's meant to take place in the community, in the workplace, in every possible scenario. It's meant to be one that the church is to be different and to live different. And one of those things that you would see would be is that there's a stooping down to lift others up. Paul, after he has declared all those things, now comes to a place where he is about in the end of chapter 6 to close off his thoughts and to share very simply his final words to the church. So if you've got your Bible there or you happen to have an iPhone, iPad, if you are at home, you might even have one of those big giant family Bibles that are about this big. You'd be afraid to carry it around, but you might have it there. You can open that up. And as we do that, we want to just pray. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for just the wonder and beauty of a, a document forged in the heavens that speaks to us every day. It brings new insights to our life. It opens our heart and our mind to the vast expression of who you are and what you want to do in us. We give you thanks and praise, and we honor you, Lord, even as we honor your word. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Before we read out of Ephesians chapter 6, I just want to tell you a simple story. It was uh, 1857. That's a few years ago. 1857. What was going on in America at that time was literally there was a division that was taking place throughout the country, not only politically, but there was also, a, 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 I guess, a, a, a shift that was taking place that had to do with the view of slavery. Those were all going to culminate in just a few short years with the beginning of the Civil War. But in, 19, in 1857, what began to take place in the midst of that was the financial institutes, banks began to close stock market began to tumble. The churches began to empty and get less and less people that were going or being involved. And what began to take place in a place called Philadelphia, it was called the Philadelphia Revival, or another term for it was the Layman's Revival. What happened was instead of on Sunday mornings, what began to take place was as any place they could find, an auditorium, throwing up a tent, a little place, their people began to gather to read the word and to pray. It was happening in New York. It was happening in Philadelphia. It was happening in Cleveland. It was happening in Chicago. And that process was something that began to sweep through the then America of 1857. Within a, a year or two years, what took place, two million people made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Two million made that decision that they would stand up and follow Jesus. In Philadelphia, there was a man. You may never have even heard of him. His name was Dudley Tyne. Dudley Tyne was a man that had been thrown out of his one church. He had to resign because he was too politically active, because he spoke about things in the Word of God that were meant to apply to life right then. He began in Philadelphia to do something simple. He'd go to the YMCA. 
and in the YMCA, he began Monday through Friday to speak and to share and to invite people to read the Word of God and to pray. There began to be a revival that swept through Philadelphia. And like I shared, it spread throughout the northeast and then across the, 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 the northern section in the big cities. It was happening everywhere. People were coming together without any formal kind of plan, and they were doing one thing. They were honoring God's word, and they were praying. In the midst of that, the things that were taking place, Dudley Tyne ended up having an accident. He ended up getting his arm caught in some farm machinery where he was helping somebody work, and the end product was he lost his arm, and with that and the technology and medical profession at that time, he also shortly would lose his life. As he laid on his deathbed, his father came and talked to him and said, Son, is there anything you want me to share with the brothers and sisters in Christ? And he looked up and said these simple words, tell them to stand up for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus. That Sunday, right after his death, a man by the name of, of George Duffield stood up and gave not only the eulogy, but gave a message about, from Ephesians that talked about standing up for Jesus. At the end of that, that message, he wrote and shared a poem that was dedicated to the life of his friend, Andrew Tyne. It starts with these words, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. That, song, that was put to music, began to spread, and it not only spread across America, but it spread across into other lands. It began something that stirred in people's heart that there was something about the need to stand that was extremely important to the Christian walk. And what we'll find today is as Paul comes to a place where he's closing off a letter to the church of Ephesus and he's been talking to them about who they are and how they're supposed to live and what's meant to go on in their life that he says over and over and over again the same word, stand, 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 stand. He's driving home the fact that the way you begin is not necessarily the way you will end unless you will be different, live different, and ultimately that you'll stand differently than those around you. If you look with me right off the bat, I want to just talk to you a little bit about this simple thing. I call it called out to stand out. It almost sounds a little bit twisted to think about being standing out as a Christian. But you know, one of the things I see throughout Scripture is a simple thought. God has no problems showcasing his kids. <laughs> Do you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I just can't even imagine if he had a wallet filled of pictures of his kids. You know, it'd be like, brr, brr, look at this one, brr, he just wrapped. And he has no problem showing them in their failures, in their struggles, in their fights, but also in their victories. He has no problems being and showing us the deep weaknesses that his, his children have and how he comes to be their strength and how he has set himself very simply to help them to stand out in Christ, to make a difference in Christ, to live differently in Christ. 
and that he has literally sourced the powers of heaven and the wonder of redemption and the power of the cross behind that movement to make them all that he wants them to be, all that he has called them to be. Scripture starts right here when we're going to look at verses 10 through 20 as Paul begins to make his final message. And he starts with actually a word, finally. In verse 10 and 11, he says these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I wrote down a very, very simple thing here, and it says this. If you're going to stand, you must accept your true identity. See, the key here is he says to be strong in what? In yourself? In your abilities? In your skill set? In the wonders of how you were created? What mom has taught you or dad has taught you? No, be strong in the Lord. And he takes us all the way back with that simple word to what he pounded on the Ephesians at the beginning of chapter 1 and 2. You are in Christ. You are in Him. You are in the Lord. This idea that there's something different that has transformed you from the inside out because you are in Christ. And in this case, he says, be strong in the Lord. It means to be empowered. Find your strength in the Lord. And very simply, one of the things that we struggle with is just that whole thing of being strong in the Lord, our identity. Do you know, I I don't know about you, but I've got a past. Maybe you don't. I've got a past. And when I look in my past, do you know what I see? I see all kinds of things that did nothing to bring glory and honor to the Father above. I see nothing that says that there was anything of goodness that was in me. But you know what? What happens when you become in Christ and he starts pressing you with the idea that he wants something more from you than you living in your past? See, I had a difficult time when God came to me and and basically invited me, called me into ministry. I argued like crazy. You can't do this. You, You don't know who I was. You know, as if he didn't know who I was. You, know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that have taken place. You know, I, no, you can't do this. And I remember the simple things that he whispered to me. Mark, I've redeemed your past. You can fill your own name in there. That's not just for me. I needed to hear it so I would get over all the things that were making me unwilling to live out and be in Christ the way I was supposed to be, to accept my true identity as a son of the Most High God. But you know what? He's saying the same thing to every one of you. In Christ, he has redeemed your past. There's nothing back there that can hold you from becoming what he's calling you to be. He has redeemed it. He's bought it back. It's just as if it's been wiped clean. And so when you start at any place, how are you going to stand when difficult times come? It has to start from a sense of your identity. In fact, the watchman, he was a a Christian martyr in communist China. 
and he wrote a number of books and things, but one that he wrote in particular that has stuck in my mind since back in the 60s when I read it. Three words. Sit, walk, stand. That was the title. And he gave a very, very simple kind of analogy that in the kingdom of God, you'll never be able to stand until you have learned to walk. And you won't be able to walk until you've learned how to sit. And he get, went into the book of Ephesians and he unfolded this simple thought. Identity. You must realize that you are seated in heavenly places with Christ or you will never walk worthy of him and you certainly won't be able to stand. You must know and receive who he has called you to be. And, and most of us, we struggle right there. Right there with real forgiveness, with real redemption, with a real, real washing away of our past and our sins. We sit in ourselves in a place where we refuse to accept the identity. We refuse to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's a beginning point always if you're going to stand. You must realize and you must accept your true identity. But not only that, look what it says right after that. Not only be strong in the Lord, but be strong in his mighty power. That word there simply means that it's like, how would I say this? Unlimited, majestic power. There's no end to what he can do. No, 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 uh, no interruption in any way, so to speak, of his service or power or wonder. And I wrote down simply this. Not only do you have to accept your true identity, you have to acknowledge that God is invincible. You're not. Hello, you're not. But he is. He's never, ever defeated. He's invincible. One of the things that you find over and over and over again is there are places in Scripture where we see this being worked out. Someone who latches on to the idea that they can be strong or be strengthened in their identity with God and then can move to that to be in a place where they will move in His mighty power or the way that He is directing things to be done. One of my great scriptures that I think about a lot is I think about David. David was in a place where he and his mighty men were off at a battle, and when they came back, everything was gone. Wives, children, family, everything that they possessed was gone. It was in a place called Ziklag. And there was such a, a, a heartbreak that took place inside of not only David but his men that scripture records it this way. David was greatly distressed because the men they were talking about stoning him that's all your fault David you're going down here each one was bitter in spirit because of their sons and their daughters but David found strength in the Lord his God then David said to Abiathar the priest the son of Elimech bring me the ephod Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? And God answered him and said, Pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed. David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then what he did was he moved to a place where he allowed God to speak to him about how God wanted to use 
his unlimited power to solve this situation. I mean, just think for a moment. You come home, your kids are gone. Your wife's gone, swinging around the other way. You come home, your husband's gone, the kids are gone. Everything you own is gone, okay? I can see the distress part. I can see the discouragement part. I can see the blame part. The part that's hard to latch on to is that David, in a moment like that, surrounded by his, all of his men, a depression and a discouragement that is flooding through the crowd, it says he strengthened himself in the Lord. He found his strength in his identity with the God who was his Savior. And then look what he does. He asked he prayed, and his prayer wasn't, okay, Lord, now I know what I'm doing. I'm getting my men, and we're going. I want you to just beat the snot out of them, God. Here we come. This was a warrior, a warrior tested in battle. Songs were sung about him. He had, he had killed his, his ten thousands. He didn't run off with that. It says that he sought God, and his simple request was this, Lord, just can I pursue can I pursue? And will you rescue them? Will you save them? God's response, yeah, I'll do that. That's acknowledging not your invincibility, but God's. It's acknowledging your identity. Lord, I'm coming to you because I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I'm coming to you, and I need your help. I'm not invincible, but you are. This is a problem bigger than me, but it's not too big for you. Show me lead me, guide me. And I would say to you very simply that the man or woman who does that is being different and living different. And ultimately, they're going to stand different. From there it goes on, and Paul comes, comes and kind of traces us back to a simple thing. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I wrote down, if you're going to stand, you not only have to accept your true identity and acknowledge that God is invincible, but you also need to adjust your view of the invisible. He takes us very quickly and simply right out of this idea of looking at everything just as flesh and blood, as rock and stone and pillar. He takes us right out of it and he says, our struggle is never, it's not against that. It's against what's behind that. You know, he calls us to get a different perspective, a different view of what's going on. You know, sometimes, you know, you, you end up in this, this crazy place where it's like you wonder what's happening. So... One of the things, okay, I'm not a, a bow hunter, okay, in case you're wondering, I'm not a bow hunter. My, my grandpa was, but I'm not a bow hunter. And I can, rem I can remember the first time as a, as, a, as a young boy that I'm hearing about a deer stand, okay? Now, can I just tell you this? I get fruit stands. I even understand witness stands. But I'm not getting deer stand other than, is that the way a deer stands? I mean, that's the way I'm thinking, I mean, that's exactly what's running through my mind. Until I get informed or I get shown that what a deer stand is is kind of a place where you can be seated way up in a tree so you can get a completely different view of what's going on. Can I tell you one? 
That's exactly what you need if you're going to be able to stand. If you're going to stand in difficult times, you've got to have your identity solid in who you are in Christ. You have to be in this place where you know God is invincible, but also that God will show you a different perspective if you will ask. If you will ask. And what you find in David's life and so many other uh, people's lives, that's exactly what takes place. And those things set them up and put them in a place where when the difficult times come, they can anchor themselves against what seems to be impossible. They anchor themselves against things that would seem to be impossible. Look what's written there in verse 13. Where, let me do my glasses. There we go. Verse 13, it says... Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Let me say this. If you've got a Bible, I know what my Bible has got circled. I know what it's got underlined here on this paper. It's one little word, when. When. When the day of evil comes. Don't kid yourself. There's no one that gets to escape that face, that time, that moment when you are face to face with darkness and evil. We all will face it, varying degrees at various times in our lives. But there is this idea that he says, very simply, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and this is so interesting, you may be able to stand your ground. Not your mom's ground, not your dad's ground, not your kid's ground, your ground. One of the things that's so interesting in Scripture, and you see it over and over again, that oftentimes there is a man or a woman, even a child, that would take a stand that is completely different from everyone that they are in communion with or community with. They stand, very simply, they stand their ground. I'll give you a simple example, and it's found in, in uh, 2 Samuel 23, verses 9 through 12. It's uh, one of uh, three of what is known as David's mighty men. And this one is Eliezer, and it says simply this. Next to him was Eliezer. He was one of three mighty warriors. He was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pasdamen for battle, and then the Israelites, everybody retreated. But Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew so tired it froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The thing I want you to think about is this. It says to stand your ground. One of the things that's so interesting here in this passage, and, and we have no idea what was taking place here in terms of the whole gamut of things, but ultimately it's this. Eliezer and all the Israelites are in battle against the Philistines. And all of a sudden, what happens is everybody turns and starts running. Everybody, everybody on Eliezer's team, everybody on David's team is gone. And Eliezer, for what he, 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 I'm sure he's thinking about going. I'd be thinking about going. 
It's like, hey, where's all my friends? I mean, I want to be, it's like, but all of us, what, it's just me? But it says this, it says that he stood his ground. There are times in all of our lives when you know that you're supposed to stand, even though nobody else is. There's times in your life when those that you love and that you cherish and are, are really your companions even, your comrades, so to speak, in life, are going a different way and you know that God is tugging on your heart and saying you need to stand. And what happens here with Eliezer is he literally anchors himself against impossibility. There's no way. But it says he holds onto his sword and he starts swinging it. He holds it so long it's frozen in his hand. He can't drop it and run even if he wants to. He's just flailing around with that. And it says at that point, God brought a great victory. Why? Because he stood his ground. He anchored himself when he knew he was supposed to. And when he anchored himself where he knew he was supposed to, God brought a victory. It's interesting that almost the identical thing is talked about about another one of uh, David's mighty men. His name was Shammai. And Shammai is in a place, almost the exact same thing takes place. He ends up in a battle. He's in a battle. All the Israelites, all of the soldiers around him begin to flee. Scripture says that he stood his ground in a bean field. For whatever reason, what made it valuable? Beans? I don't think so. Why did he stand in a bean field? Because of one thing and one thing only. He knew that was his ground. He knew that he was supposed to stand right there, and he did. That's called anchoring yourself even in the midst of impossibility. It's what it takes if you're going to be one that not only is being different, doing different, but ultimately is going to stand differently. You're going to stand different because of something that God is doing in you. It's attached to his invincibility. It's attached to your identity. It's attached to all those separate little things that you know and understand about the Most High God and what he wants to do in your life. Never mind about the past, never mind about the problems, never mind about how impossible this situation looks. I am in relationship with an invincible God. And for whatever reason, I'm sure, I'm sure it's pretty hard for Shammai or Eliezer to be in the place that they're going, well, I got this all figured out. I'm sure they both thought they were going to be martyrs. I'm sure they thought they were going to go down, but that's not what God had planned. He was once again showing off his kids. Watch what happens when they stand out. When they stand out, I bring the victory. And of course, it's something that we say all the time, but we don't really wrap our head around it. The battle belongs to the Lord. You just show up. You just obey. You just respond. You feel the tug on your heart, and you give yourself to that no matter what it looks like. You literally anchor yourself in this understanding that there's nothing that is too big for God. Years ago, I was pastoring in early years of my pastorate, and, and I remember that I, one day I had a, a guy from the congregation. He comes running in, and 
and says, can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes in, sits down, and he goes, Ron, Ron's going to kill me. And it's like I'm going, what? Ron who? It was someone that was in the church also, a brother in Christ. He goes, I, 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 I did some things probably wrong, and, and he said, he, he's going to kill me. Well, the Ron he was talking about was uh, about 6'5", 275. He was a former uh, San Francisco downtown police officer, seen t- some really, really rough times in his life, and literally had come to a small town where I was uh, pastoring at the time and had taken up a career now as a painter. He just want, did, wanted nothing to do with the rest of that. But I could tell you <clears throat> from the, my friend's statement that it was the old Ron that was coming for him. And I remember I was just saying, it's, it's going to be okay, I'm be okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't five minutes that all of a sudden it was like this. And I'm thinking, oh, I, wonder, I wonder who that is. <laughs> and I go, I go to the door and I open the door and, and Ron just, he, he fills, he fills the doorway. And he is glaring and he is talking about killing the guy behind me. I remember I'm standing there, and I mean, all I could see was red eyes and everything else, and all I could think was, it's got to be a demon. And I mean, I just, I mean, this is me. I mean, honestly, I just looked at him, and I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And he started laughing. Yeah, yeah, you think it's funny. It wasn't funny to me, but he, he started laughing. He started laughing at me, and then he said these words. Now, now what are you going to do? And I remember just thinking, uh, I'm going to stand here. It's all I got. I'm going to stand here. Stand here between you doing something that you will regret doing for the rest of your life and him getting what he may deserve but shouldn't have. And very simply, we stood there for a moment. There was kind of a dead silence And then Ron just looked at me, nodded his head, and walked away. For me, that has always stood in my mind. It's like, God's not asking you, Mark, to do anything other than stand. Stand where you know you're supposed to stand. Anchor your feet. Don't give ground. Just stand there. I'll take care of the rest if you you don't mess it up too much. (laughs) But that's kind of the feeling. Mark, if you don't mess it up too much, there's a real possibility that I can have my way here in this situation and where would be confusion and upheaval and confrontation, there can be peace. Just let me do that work. You just anchor yourself and stand where you know you're supposed to stand. I, I believe that's not just for me. I believe that everything through the word shows the same thing over and over again, that there is a God who is victorious, a God that is powerful, a God that is invincible, and he wants to work in and through your life if you will just be different, live different, and along with that, stand differently. Scripture goes on from there, and very simply, Paul writes a few things. He writes in verses 14 through 17, he says, Stand firm. When the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is 
the word of God. So simply here, those are the things that need to be put on. See, armor, armor that is not worn is ineffective. Doesn't work. Doesn't work unless you put it on. Why do you put it on? I can tell you that the, this, and maybe this is just that macho stuff from, from being younger when I thought I could conquer the world, but it's like there is something in me that goes, well, you, you, you put it on so you can smash everybody, of course. You know, give me that sword and a shield. Give me the, all the that's what, I'm going to hammer this home. Just let me, for Jesus, I'm ready. Except there's a funny little word that's used here. And, and for, for whatever reason, I, I've always run right past it. It's the word that says, stand firm. See, when I, when I read that, my thought is, yeah. You know, it's like all those different things. Yeah, I'll get ready. I mean, I'm, I, I'm ready. You know, all those things, okay? The word there means this. Stand safe and secure. Safe and secure. That armor, the things that God gives us, such a wonderful gift there that he asks us to put on, is protective by nature. He wants to protect you. He wants to make sure that you are safe and secure. Why? So with a boldness and a confidence, you can stand and let him win the battle. Let him win the battle. You have to be able to stand. And most of us know that if we don't feel protected, if we don't feel safe and secure, our little feetsies want to run the other way. We just do. It can be the, the simplest kind of situation. But we have a tendency to want to run. We want to run, and God wants us to stand. That putting on and all those things that are mentioned there are really a great picture of what Paul spoke about earlier on in Ephesians 4 when he makes a statement. You were, you were taught with regard to the former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by all of its deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitude of your minds, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That word for put on the new man is the same word that's used here for put on the armor of God. Not your armor. The armor of God. It's this picture that what is provided in Christ and what is being constantly offered to us is everything about Jesus and about who he is wants to be transferred to us first internally, then outwardly, and finally to a place that when we stand here, we stand in Christ and we stand like Christ. We stand for Christ and all of that for one purpose only, to bring glory and honor to the Father God to give praise and honor to him because of where we stand, not because of whether we can win, not because of somehow whether we look good, but somehow that by standing there'll be glory and honor given to the Father above. One of the things that, that happens 
so, so simply is, is that we oftentimes just end up thinking that, okay, well, well, then what? And Paul at this point stops. He stops his whole scenario that has to do with the armor of God. He stops at that point, and you, you wonder, where is he going? I mean, he comes right to the point, and he closes it off just simply with, with that, with the, the, the different parts of the armor. And then in verse 18, he shifts over, and this is what he says. And, or now. Now that you're all dressed up, and you're ready to whip the world, I'd like you to do something very simple. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. And then this is Paul asking. This is Paul asking for prayer from the church of Ephesus. Think about all that you know about Paul, all that he's gone through, all the things that at this point where he is in prison, he has paid the price over and over and over again as being a faithful witness of the Most High God. And these are his words, pray for me. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador and I'm in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. It's the Apostle Paul. He's asking for prayer. Church, where Paul takes us to is this simple thing, and that is that we need to stay alert and we need to pray instantly. We need to pray for one another. We need to pray for our family. We need to pray when God brings something to our mind. The Holy Spirit stirs us even in a dream, reminding us of somebody, some kind of situation, something that the Lord shows. And by prayer, I love what he says here, all kinds of prayer, okay? There's a difference between, I mean, you, you, you know, how to put it? On your knees with your head bowed and praying is not the only kind of prayer. It's very hard to do when you're driving. <laughs> okay? I mean, it, just saying it is. It is. And also, the, the kind of prayer that goes like this, I close my eyes and pray. No, you better not. It's like, you better not. When he's saying all kinds of, it's like prayer is just communicating. It's communicating with God about anything. And what Paul is saying is, this is how you attack everything that's wrong. Everything that needs a touch. Everything that needs my victory. Just ask. Ask. Speak the things that I put in your heart. Say them to me. Invite me into a situation. And what happens there is suddenly there's something taking place here that is different. Say, is that really the way that we think we should battle? Just rather punch somebody, you know? I mean, there's just, you think about it, it's like, can't I give like an arm, you know, arm hold or something? I mean, there should be something, trip somebody even maybe, in Jesus' name, of course. But it's like, you know, you, you, you feel like there's something, it's like, really? Really, Lord, are you saying it can be that simple? that you just want me to talk to you and share with you and respond to you and then just do whatever you say, pray whatever you want me to say. 
talk to whoever you want me to. Is that it? Yeah, that'd be a good first start, Mark. It really would be. It, it is that simple. See, what happens is, and this is the key, we all need prayer. We all need support. We all need help. Need it in your relationships, you need it in your family, you need it in your personal life, you need it in the church, you need it in the community, you need it at work. There's a great need for people to pray for one another. It was at the very heart of that revival I talked to you about in 1857. It was lay people praying. They were praying that God, that God would be victorious in every situation. And suddenly things begin to happen. I'm going to ask you to, the worship team to come ahead, and I want to close by just sharing you a, another little thought, and it has to do with this idea of praying for one another and also the church. One of the things that Scripture records in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through, I think it's 16, is Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking to them about the light of the world. And he makes this statement. You are the light of the world. Once again, he has no problem showcasing his kids. <laughs> a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If you think about a light, think about an individual light, you being a light, and you think about that in a home or in a workplace or any place else like that, very simply, there is an illumination that comes. There's something that comes just because you're there, just because of where you stand, just because of who you are, just because of the way you live, but also just because of the way you say things and also just because of the way you pray. And what happens in the midst of that is it says that it, it lights up the whole house. That whole atmosphere that you're in is touched by the presence of Jesus in you, working through you, and you responding to him, and it touches people. But there's another thing here that talks about a town or a city that's built on a hill. Think of a community of believers community of believers where every individual is a light and is living like a light. When they come together, it's like a city on a hill. And Jesus says, that kind of light cannot be hidden. It cannot be hidden. There's an importance of coming together. There's an importance of praying for one another. There's an importance of standing together with each other that produces something of a dynamic that is much greater than just individuals. It has to do with something that is corporate, that is community, that has an impact that cannot be hidden from the world around. It's like, it's like a stand of trees. You know, if you have a stand of trees, a stand of trees is where there's a number of trees that are, are close together. What do they do? Well, individually, they're trees, right? Hello, I'm going to be a tree. I'm going to be a tree today. I think I'll be a tree today. And tomorrow, I'm going to be a tree again. Okay? But in that stand, what happens is every place that they are, 
everyone that stands in their place and position, what happens is they provide protection and care for all the others that are in that stand. Do you know what a dead tree does? It does no, nothing for the stand. It just doesn't do anything. Life is meant to flow through you. It's meant to flow through me, to flow through us. And there's meant to be something that happens that brings a growth and a life to all of us because we are together praying for one another, caring for one another, living for the Lord, and loving people the way Jesus wants us to. You can be a stand of trees. You can be a city on the hill. We can all be that if we choose. It's an individual choice that has corporate and community exponential kind of results that come from it. And that's what I believe Paul is trying to draw the church to. Understand who you are and understand how you're supposed to live. Understand who I am as the Most High God and understand that if you will stand, you will see marvelous things happen that cannot be hidden. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Paul. Golly, Lord, how the Holy Spirit moved through him and spoke through him in so many ways that now thousands of years later we're still impacted by your words and also the, the lives of people that have gone before us. We thank you, Lord, for so many of your saints and your word that you have showcased, both good and bad, shown that, that we can be like that, that we can experience those kind of things, that we can stand when we think we want to run, that we can literally be in a place where we reflect the wonder and glory and beauty of who Jesus Christ is. That we can live differently. We can be different. We can live in a way that honors and glorifies you all the days of our life. And that's the choice we want to make. We choose. We choose to glorify you. We choose to honor you, both as individuals and corporately. May you be high and lifted up, Most High God, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.